0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You awake to the sound of a hard rain falling outside the bars of your concrete cell. Another nightmare same as the one you've suffered for the past weeks and now months. You grin at the sad truth of waking from one sleeping nightmare to this living nightmare as your eyes focus on the wall near your cot, where other prisoners have used pieces of crumbling concrete to scratch their names or initials into the walls. Then you look at the iron bars in the window frame that look out into the concrete hallway. In the next cell block, a man cries out in his sleep in what you know now to be the language of a Saipan villager. You know this because you've learned it from your interrogators, the most recent of whom speaks perfect English. Hell, he ought to. He's a graduate of UCLA who had returned to Japan to pursue a career in aircraft engineering and design. He's wearing the starched white uniform of a Japanese naval officer now and asking design questions specific to the Electra. The last interrogator was a pompous little windbag who spoke in broken English. You Americans are weak. You are spoiled. Your president is a cripple. Your military is a joke. Your Navy will someday be attacked and sunk. Every day you heard the same crap from this conceited little rooster, and you resisted the temptation to grab him from behind and throw him from the second floor veranda of this crappy little hotel in the middle of this nowhere island but you're so weak from dehydration and starvation you can barely make the walk up to the hotel for these two-hour sessions. When you wisecrack this one or refuse to answer that one immediately, he would slap you hard with the back of his hand. He told you that your friend Noonan has not been cooperative or useful. You have heard Fred's screams coming from the building where he's been taken to every day in the compound, the concrete pit which doubles as a cafeteria for those who work in the prison compound. More than once you heard him curse his interrogators until his voice became hoarse and then finally went silent. He has not screamed now in three days. Others scream, but their screams are different. These local people can't know anything valuable. Why abuse them? Men and women. The Japanese military must hire sadists for their jails, you reason, and every new prisoner becomes a source for enjoyment. The local prisoners have families that are nearby. This is a local jail. The Japanese have occupied this island for 20 years. They have their own reasons for jailing the locals. They do not provide them with food in their cells, except when their families bring it. You've seen the families handing baskets of food to the guards. The guards sort through, take what they want, usually most of it. They treat their prisoners like animals. You have no local family to bring you food. You get one bowl of slimy-smelling soup in the morning, one at night. Your stomach has been in knots for weeks. Every day, the guards come to get you to escort you to the hotel, just a five-minute walk away. Every day, you're getting weaker. You walk along the path with them for a few hundred yards, and then you're escorted to a room where your interrogator awaits with tea and a fresh change of clothing. Outside the room is a veranda. When it's not raining, you sometimes sit out there. What you do depends totally upon your interrogator. It is surreal. Maids are hanging freshly washed clothes and linens down in the courtyard. Sometimes they look up at you. The little man in the starched white uniform today has a newly arrived set of questions for you. Who is Chenault? You don't know. How many ships at Pearl Harbor? I don't know. What kind of planes have you flown? Who taught you to fly? What did you do with the film from the camera mounted on the underside of your plane? We never used a camera. What were your orders? We're not military. I've I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. I have no rank, I have no serial number. And we're not spies. We are aviators. We have no rank. You have no right to hold us. When is the Red Cross coming? Your mind wanders back to the States. You're a long way from Kansas, you think. You remember your first flight instructor, then the quest to break all those records, the awards, the magazine cover photos, the White House visits, your family, Mom, sis, your spouse. And the memory snaps. His high-pitched voice interrupts. Let's discuss your plane and your radio equipment. Who builds the planes for your Navy? What capabilities do they have? I have no idea, you answer. I don't care. Wait, let me think. Maybe I can remember some details if I can have a piece of fruit like the one you're eating in front of me. He continues without sharing the fruit. The newspapers say you met with President Roosevelt. You are friends. What did he ask you to do? Take pictures of our airfields? What does he know? What has he told you? You are a spy. Where did you train? I never met President Roosevelt. Where am I? You've said all this a hundred times. But this is a new interrogator. Maybe he'll answer this time. To your surprise, he does. You are in Saipan. It is an island, a Japanese island. The village here is called Garapan. You are staying at the jail. This hotel is called the Kabayashi Royukan. This is our headquarters. Would you like to stay here all the time? You can if you're helpful to sign this paper that admits you were spying for the United States. And if I do, what do I get? You can write to your family and you can live another day, provided you tell us everything you know about American planes you have flown or that you know of. I trust you are enjoying your current accommodations. Yeah, the 10 by 12 concrete cell has been wonderful, really. I don't want you to put yourselves out. He looks for a moment like he's going to slap you, but he holds back. The rain outside continues to fall. This is crazy, you're thinking. Where, where are our rescuers? What have you done with my co-pilot? Your co-pilot? You mean your fellow spy? He pauses. Mr. Noonan was not cooperative. He told us nothing useful. You stare at this young Japanese officer. You picture yourself blowing his brains out. The Japanese interrogator stands up abruptly. I'm sure you're holding out hope that you will be rescued. That we will keep you alive as a bargaining chip. That your celebrity status will make it impossible for us to be rid of you. But I will tell you now. The government is claiming that your plane crash landed and that your body was never found. You have been officially put to rest. Your countrymen believe you are dead. Mr. Roosevelt knows you were picked up by our people, but he is saying nothing. Here is the news clipping that says you crashed at sea and were lost. You read it. This one stings. He has known since the day you were forced down and were picked up and handed to our authorities. He does not know you are here, but that doesn't matter. He doesn't care. He has made no effort to inform your people of what has actually transpired, and he will not, because it would not be wise to do so in his way of thinking. He has chosen to treat you as if you were dead, because you are worth much more to American morale as a dead hero than as a live, captured spy. If your countrymen thought for one moment that your government had used you and your plane to spy on their peaceful neighbor Japan and provide pictures of our landing strips in the Marshall Islands, they would be outraged. That would be considered an act of aggression. It would tarnish the president's image as well as yours. It images everything, isn't it? That would not help your friend Mr. Roosevelt's re-election, would it? America does not have a taste for war, and matters of this nature are not made public. And all American spies caught overseas become classified secrets. Isn't that true? With a sinking heart, you realize that the interrogator is right. There will be no rescue. When they've asked you all the questions and gotten all the answers they need, you will be executed if you don't die first from malnutrition and dysentery. Understand this, the interrogator continues. You'll be kept alive as long as you can provide us with information. And your signature has been requested. Cooperate with us and you may live longer. The guards have arrived to escort you back to your cell. On your walk, a Saipanese woman suddenly appears before you and hands you a piece of fresh fruit, an offense that on any given day might mean her own imprisonment for aiding and abetting a prisoner. But the guards this day look the other way, as if this was prearranged. Tears swell in your eyes at her kindness. You slip off the only thing you wear that has survived this ordeal intact your ring, a gold ring with a white stone that is the last reminder of your past life. And you gently place it in her hand and smile. She hurries away, clutching the last bit of life as you knew it in her small hand, disappearing down the worn footpath in the direction of the village. On July 5th, 2017, headlines reading, New Photo Shows Earhart Was Captured by the Japanese. Exploded on the media, and by the end of the following day, everyone in the world who follows the news had seen the headline, and many had looked into the news behind it. The History Channel picked up the story and photo and ran with it, airing a special that suggested the photo added credibility to the theory that Amelia and her co-pilot Fred Noonan had survived what many had surmised was a fatal crash landing. But by July 13th, CNN was reporting, Photo appears to have been taken two years before Earhart vanished. Reporting that bloggers had located and dated the photo to 1935. A CNN news report read, A newly discovered photo that claimed to hold the key to the 80-year-old mystery surrounding Amelia Earhart's disappearance may have been published two years before she vanished. The blurry photo used in a History Channel documentary, was alleged to show the groundbreaking pilot and her navigator Fred Noonan alive and well on a dock in the Marshall Islands in 1937. But two bloggers say they found the photo in a Japanese coffee table book from 1935 when Earhart was safely in the United States. One is military history blogger Kota Yamano, who discovered the undated photograph, allegedly of Amelia Earhart, published in a travel book, dated two years before the aviator's ill-fated 1937 mission. The other blogger's name was Holly, who lives in the Marshall Islands, and both bloggers say the photo was in a 1935 travel book titled Naval Lifeline, The View of Our South Pacific, Photo Album of Southern Pacific Islands. CNN and dozens of other news organizations closed their video reports that evening by sending all the survivor believers to Gullibility Island, Closing the doors on the story. But before we close the doors on this, however, let's take a closer look at what is actually in the picture, beginning with the Japanese cargo ship, the Kyosho Maru, according to the experts at the Smithsonian and elsewhere who identified it. It also appears to be towing a barge with what appears to be a silver plane about 38 feet long on its rear deck, which could be Earhart's Electra 1040A. It's grainy, but it just might be. And years later, multiple stories from eyewitnesses reported seeing the electric crash land on a barrier reef at nearby Miliatol. A barge picked up the plane, which had a broken right wing and no doubt totally damaged landing wheels and undercarriage from a rough landing on an exposed reef at low tide. It was a miracle that she landed it and survived. The same witnesses saw a white man and woman emerge from the plane. He wearing a bloody white rag tied around his head and his leg was bleeding as well. More witnesses later saw Japanese soldiers accosting them. The woman screamed, the soldiers slapped them both in their faces. We dug deeper and the Kiyosho Maru wasn't built until 1936 at the Amagasaki dock in Osaka. So how did it end up in a book they say was published in 1935? The fate of Amelia Earhart, the famed aviator who vanished without a trace while attempting to circumnavigate the globe, is one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. Most experts believe that Earhart plummeted into the Pacific Ocean in 1937 after failing to locate a refueling station on Howland Island, a tiny speck of land just north of the equator. But as Tom Costello and Daniel Arkin report for NBC News, a new History Channel special claims to have unearthed evidence to support a different theory which posits that Earhart crashed onto the Marshall Islands and was captured, alive, by the Japanese. That special, titled Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, focuses on a decades-old photo that was found in the National Archives by retired Federal agent Les Kinney. According to Sarah Pruitt of History.com, the photograph was marked with the stamp of the Office of Naval Intelligence and labeled, Marshall Islands, Jaluit Ato. Jollywood Island, Jollywood Harbor. The photo shows a group of people milling on a dock, one of whom sits on the edge of the dock with his or her profile facing away from the camera. That person, according to the documentary, is Earhart. True, there are no Japanese soldiers visible on the dock. The man who is said to be Fred Noonan is the only white man visible on the dock. He is standing, apart from the figure that is said to be Earhart's, facing the camera. It appears the people on the dock are waiting to be picked up. None are walking away. All are standing with the exception of Earhart. Most look like Islanders. So, we dug a little deeper. We looked at old maps. We searched for the Japanese headquarters. We found it. The people are most likely waiting for a boat to take them to the nearby islet of Emiyazh which was the headquarters of the Imperial Japanese Navy in 1937. It was also a major seaplane base. Arga says that Amelia and Fred had been dropped off at this dock on Jaluit Island by the Kyosho Maru, which is in the picture. Why here? The waters around Emiyej being too shallow for cargo ships. They weren't going to escape from here, hence no guards required on the dock. This was a terminal, a deserted island. The only place you could go from here was the Japanese HQ where they had probably demanded to be taken so they could get this mess straightened out. At this point they were probably still thinking they could talk their way out of this if they could talk to the right people. The Islanders shown in the photo had some kind of business there at the base as well, probably cafeteria workers, mechanics, pick anyone. To reach the conclusion that the man and woman on the dock were actually Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart, History consulted two independent forensic analysts who identified the missing pilot in the photograph. The experts also noted that one of the other figures has a distinctive hairline resembling that of Fred Noonan. The investigative team behind the History Channel special consequently theorizes that the photo was snapped shortly after Earhart crashed her plane onto the Marshall Islands meaning that she had flown far off course from her intended destination of Howland Island. The identity of the photographer is unknown, but history's experts seem certain about the photo's subject. More convincing evidence, Cochrane says, points to Earhart getting close to Howland Island before her disappearance. The pilot put in a number of radio calls to the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca, which was stationed near Howland, and the signals were very strong, according to Cochrane. What is nice about History.com is that they knew part of the backstory. The others, like CNN, were just passing along a few headlines. They had no idea that some very good investigators, journalists, beginning as far as 60 years ago, had already placed Jollywood Atoll in their sights for the surviving aviators. Which, to those who studied the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, makes the photo all the more credible. History.com, to their credit, knew that investigative journalists had turned up pieces of Earhart's plane and interviewed crash witnesses at Mili Atoll about 150 kilometers from Jaluit and believed that Noonan and Earhart had been placed on the Kyosho Maru, receiving medical attention there. Jaluit was a major Japanese intelligence base and center for ships and planes. The rest of the story and the hundreds of witnesses that say Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan survived follows here. where to begin, and what an incredible story this is. Here we are in July of 2017, 80 years after the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, still receiving tantalizing scraps of proof that put us closer on the trail to finding the real story of how and why they disappeared. Briefly, Amelia Earhart, born in Atchison, Kansas, was an American icon by the age of 30, having turned her love of flying planes into a passion that lit the fire in the hearts of millions of young ladies and men who admired her winning attitude, her lack of fear, and her drive. She was the heroine of the press and the media, attending White House dinners, adorning the cover of magazines, and doing all she could to promote flying and put women in the air and give them a dream. Bridges, ships, airports, schools, roads, and God knows what else still bear her name. In the age of discovery, While much of the world had yet to be explored, and flight was still in its infancy, she was an adventurer par extraordinaire, a hero to which millions pinned their hopes. When she announced that she was planning to become the first woman and only the second person to circumnavigate the world following the heroic exploits of her friend and mentor Charles Lindbergh, she was catapulted to star status. She was every woman's guiding star. And they all watched and listened when her plane left Oakland, California in May of 1937 and proceeded to fly east across the United States, then the Atlantic, then Europe, then onto the Pacific, stopping at various points to refuel and rest. So when news reached the world that her plane had disappeared en route from New Guinea to Howland Island, the world was shocked and desperate for answers. Answers which never came. Nothing from the U.S. Navy or Coast Guard, nothing from Roosevelt, nothing from Japan. Although all of them knew something, they weren't talking. It wasn't until Marines returning from Saipan started talking about the stories they had heard there about a white woman and a white man who had been held captive in the jail at Garapan and then executed by the Japanese on that island that the stories began to creep out. In 1960, the following article appeared in the San Mateo Times. Amelia Earhart killed on Saipan, San Mateo Times, California, Friday, July 1, 1960. The article reads, The mystery of the fate of Amelia Earhart was solved today, 23 years to the day that she vanished with her navigator over the lonely Pacific brilliant on-the-scene reporting on the island of Saipan, and a brilliant newspaper-radio cooperative venture ripped the veil from the baffling puzzle of the disappearance of the First Lady of the Air on July 2, 1937. Radio newsman Fred Gurner and Maximo Akiyama unlocked the door to the mystery in a vividly dramatic 11,000-mile journey to Saipan, sponsored jointly by the Times and radio station KCBS of San Francisco. The Times and KCBS through national radio, TV and news networks today revealed the documented results. Amelia Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan landed in the Garapan Harbor near the Panapeg Naval Base in Saipan in 1937. A Japanese Naval launch picked up the two flyers and brought them to shore. They were taken to the military headquarters, questioned and separated. Noonan was forced into an automobile by his captors and was never seen again. Amelia was moved to a small building in the barracks military compound. She was apparently executed. Several witnesses heard that she was. The story was immediately pulled. There were no follow-ups by the big newspapers. Surprisingly, it was as if they were purposely ignoring it. That left the field wide open for a handful of independent journalists who went after it like bulldogs. The truth is, thanks to the efforts of a handful of these investigative journalists whose material we will discuss at length in this two-part series, the men who took the arrows and spent most of their lives in an effort to uncover the truth, the answer has been hiding in plain sight for years. It's ugly, and it might make you mad, but the truth can be that way. And you can always deny what we're about to tell you, which is entirely hearsay from over 200 hard-gotten interviews done by those same investigative journalists I just mentioned but there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence that can't be denied. Photo taken on the dock at Jollywood Atoll seals the deal for some and places Amelia and Fred in Japanese hands. Here is the story as best I can tell from dozens of accounts and we'll name names and places and let the chips fall where they may. First, a disclaimer. Our opening that you heard is historical fiction. However, the jail was in Garapan. It was concrete. Amelia was walked to the nearby hotel daily for interrogation, according to witnesses. People hanging wash outside reported seeing her sitting on the veranda of the three-story hotel. She was interrogated by English-speaking Japanese officials who undoubtedly had lists of questions they wanted answered and both she and Fred very possibly saw their last days in Saipan, according to numerous witnesses. Secondly, we have to answer the obvious question, why is this taken so long and why was the truth never given to the public? We'll try to answer that in this two-part series as well. The true story has been attacked, suppressed, vilified or ignored by many in the media and purposely kept buried by the now friendly U.S. and Japanese governments with different motives for keeping the true story from prying eyes, but motives for silence present nonetheless. The American news media, as well as cable entertainment and video entrepreneurs, with some exceptions, seek to keep the search alive because it pays so well in readership and viewers. With them, or from them, we receive one tantalizing clue after another, a skeleton found here, the heel of a shoe found there, a picture showing what might be the landing gear of the Lockheed Electra rising up from the water near a deserted island, with one popular island being Nikumaroro. The American public, yes, the world's desire to know what really happened to the brave aviator adventurers who broke all those barriers defining men's and women's roles in society. Provided the answer involves a painless and quick romantic castaway death, and not death by dysentery in a remote jail cell. Provided that our close friends, the kind, supremely intelligent, and industrious Japanese, are not involved. And provided that no dispersion is cast upon Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his legacy. That desire to know has been insatiable. That untarnished public curiosity is worth millions to the people who profit from books, newspapers, TV, and Internet advertising revenue. And if they play their cards right, they can squeeze many more millions out of it before people finally reach and settle upon the brutal truth, which has been right in front of us for 60 years. To the American government, the act of opening any deep files on a topic which could prove embarrassing to the memory of a president especially one who makes policy during a major war, could prove to be a career-ending blunder for the government employee seeking the truth. Certainly none of our flag officers who came in contact with the truth were willing to put it anywhere in print or in any style of recording. Maybe some files are still marked classified. Many more might not be. But files have a way of getting lost or misplaced or deep-filed, and you have to know where to look and what to ask for. The truth be damned, just make sure I get my pension and keep my rank. In Japan, any drama hearkening back to the days of Hirohito and the mighty empire of the rising sun is guaranteed to open old wounds. The Japanese, like the Nazis, or ISIS, the Romans, the Spanish conquistadors, or any dysfunctional warrior society that believes they're destined by their superiority to rule the world with a merciless sword, were brutal invaders who left behind a swath of cruelty, rape, torture, beheadings, and mayhem, unrivaled in the 20th century. Ask any Marine who served in World War II, and they'll tell you that you at least had a chance if you were captured by the Nazis. Little or none for Japanese prisoners of war. 100% chance of beatings and torture with the Japanese. This being the case when it comes to the hard fact that the Japanese picked up Earhart and Noonan in July of 1937 arrested them as spies, delivered them to a jail in Saipan, and offered them only imprisonment, starvation, and torture. That is a past which they would like to deny and put as far behind them as possible. The mystery of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan is better served on some remote island in the Pacific, not the concrete jails of Japanese-occupied Saipan. There have been so many theories. There are over 200 documented witnesses that will provide you with the trail of Earhart and Noonan from the time they went wheels up in New Guinea to their last breath. We're going to list links to all the well-researched books that provide these interviews and these accounts in our show notes and we encourage you to go there. The information we provide here is intended only as a pathway for you to research deeper and find the true story for yourselves. So remember to visit our show notes when you're done listening to these shows and you'll be able to catch up on the full story. Some of their testimony was used to support our opening segment, but a lot is hearsay. There's no DNA and there's no tangible evidence. To me, it doesn't matter if the photo possibly showing the downed aviators on the dock at Jaluit actually shows them or someone else. In fact, if I'm going to believe numerous witness accounts that Noonan has a bandaged head, where is that in this picture? Did the medic stitch it up aboard the ship? Maybe. I've been following this for years and the photo may be big news or a big disappointment to many, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm grateful it surfaced because it keeps the search for the truth alive. I think they survived a crash landing on Bar Reef Meleito on July 2nd, 1937, and that the trail of witnesses from the moment that plane went down to Saipan, once you listen to what researchers have given us, is just too strong to ignore. That's the trail we're following here. By the end of Episode 2, you'll be totally up to date, at least until the next new discovery. The first of the really good investigative journalists to cover the true story of the ill-fated flight was San Francisco newsman Fred Gurner, who wrote the 1966 bestseller The Search for Amelia Earhart, which was the first of several books to reveal what I consider to be the truth. Gurner dedicated over 25 years to the search for the truth about Earhart's disappearance and death, interviewing, photographing, and filming or videotaping those firsthand, hand second-hand, and third-hand accounts from Saipanese Islanders, ex-military, three famous U.S. flag officers, Coast Guardsmen, radio operators, witnesses to the capture of and treatment of Earhart and Noonan from Jollywood Atoll and the Marshall Islands to the Garapan Jail on Saipan, and much more. Among Gurner's witnesses was Manuel Alden, a Saipanese dentist who treated Japanese officers and spoke their language. The name of the lady flyer I hear used, Alden told Gurner in 1960, this is the name the Japanese officer said, Airharto. In the early 60s, Gurner traveled the world, digging into every lead he could find for his book. He contacted Admiral Nimitz in Washington. They met and they became fast friends. Gurner shared his frustration with finding so many closed doors to his investigation with respect to anything having to do with American knowledge of Earhart's disappearance. But, Gurner said, it was Nimitz who told him to stick with it, providing him with the motivation to keep moving forward, despite the fact that there was a growing sentiment from his peers in the media that he was digging in the wrong hole with regard to Saipan. That sentiment still exists today, although the walls are slowly coming down. According to Gerner. In 1965, retired Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz told him, Now that you're coming to Washington, Fred, I want to tell you, Earhart and her navigator did go down in the Marshalls and were picked up by the Japanese. Not a word about Nimitz's revelation can be found in any mainstream media product in the past several decades. And, of course, critics say Gurner was lying. Even the Nimitz Museum has problems with publications that print this, since Nimitz never said it publicly. We checked out reviews for Fred Gurner's book at Amazon, and one of them, a very interesting one, is included here. Dated August 20th, 2016. The title of the review, verified from family members in this book, Absolute Truth. It reads, I was initially told about this book by my aunt, not blood relation, but she raised me, who is from Guam, but has a bloodline that goes back to Saipan. Seven family members of hers are referenced in this book and I just received it last week and couldn't put it down. She told me that her mother and grandmother saw the American flying woman dressed like a man. This was the high cut jeans and leather jacket Amelia wore. I don't know why my aunt waited to tell me now that I'm almost 30. I would have loved to share this knowledge as a kid. Fred Gurner reveals the true story here and it is a word for word of what was passed down through my aunt's generations as the truth. Ultimately this happened during wartime, so there was not much mercy spared. Her navigator Noonan was beheaded and displayed around the island before they buried him and they warned the natives, if you help, assist the Americans, this is what will happen to you. It was believed that Amelia was sent to one or more of the islands to live among the covenants, monks, so she wouldn't be found and allegedly she buried a few children. That is the only part no one can truly confirm. Mr. Gurner got it right with this one from the get-go, and you will not be disappointed. In his book, The Truth at Last, which is a great read, if you read the book's promotional jacket text, the book dismantles and debunks the popular theories that Amelia Earhart's Electra crashed and sank off Howland Island on July 2, 1937, or landed at Gardner Island, now Nikumaruru, where the suddenly hapless flyers died of starvation on an island teeming with food sources. Back to Amelia and Fred after landing at Amelia Ato, which brings our 1001 heroes from the landing of Earhart's Electra on Bar Reef about 200 yards from the beach on Mili, where Earhart and an apparently bloody Noonan left the craft, inflating a yellow life raft, according to the story of two boys who were fishing nearby. According to one witness, Noonan and Earhart reached the beach, Noonan carrying a small box, which he knelt and buried beneath the roots of a coconut tree. Earhart carrying a valise, probably containing a visa and identification, which would hopefully get them back to the U.S. if shown to the right people. The flyers were soon picked up by a Japanese fishing boat, which transported them to the Japanese cargo ship Maru for medical treatment, for which we have the testimony of a Japanese medic. The electra was loaded onto a barge, according to witnesses, which was being towed by the Maru. We'll get to that in a minute. From the Kyosho Maru they were ferried back to the dock at Jaluit Atoll, where the now famous naval intelligence photo of the two aviators, if you want to believe it's them, on the dock was taken. It doesn't matter if the photo shows them or not, they were likely there at some point. They waited on that dock for a boat to take them to the Naval Intelligence Base on a nearby island, reachable only by ferry fact that they were found alive was all over the Tokyo newspapers according to this rare headline published by international news services INS which appeared in the July 13th 1937 edition of the Bethlehem Pennsylvania Globe Times before the story was quickly squelched in both Japan and the U.S. Dateline Tokyo July 13, 1937 INS. Vague and unconfirmed rumors that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan have been rescued by a Japanese fishing boat without a radio and therefore unable to make a report, found no verification here today, but plunged Tokyo into a fever of excitement. The Navy Department had no official word of any such rescue, but was striving to ascertain the position of the fishing boat rumored to have effected the rescue. Tokyo newspapers had a virtual field day. Stories speculating about the rumors were given tremendous play competing with developments in North China for the most prominent display. Now you and I weren't there in Tokyo in July of 1937, but I'm going to guess that the Japanese, who had treated Charles Lindbergh like a true hero, were genuinely excited to have been able to participate in finding Amelia Earhart. They had no doubt been following her story with interest, and so the positive national headlines. But the Japanese people were ruled at that time by a government with a much deeper and darker motive. And that government also controlled the newspapers. And that same government, military, media complex saw value in holding Earhart and Newman as spies and suppressing the truth because they no doubt believed the captured flyers could provide information on US intentions and military capabilities. Information that might prove valuable to their future designs which included an attack on U.S. naval forces at Pearl Harbor which was to take place just four years distant. The story was squelched in Japan, same in the U.S. No follow-ups, no investigative journalism on the part of the big media. The job was left to independent journalists and when that happens, they can all be labeled by government and big media as crackpots. See a pattern developing here. Back to the witnesses at Melia Atoll and Jollywood Atoll. Another credible account puts Amelia in the Marshalls alive in 1937, that of a federal employee on Kwajalein in 1965, who was told by an old Marshallese man of the nearly certain presence of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan near eBay Island in 1937. Published in Primax Amelia Earhart Society Newsletter, portions of the Burris account read like this the title, Another GI Experience in the Pacific Islands by Ted Burris. In 1965, I was working on Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands, having been there since 1964. I knew my job well enough to become a bit bored and cast about for some volunteer work to absorb time and interest. As it happened, the Aloha Council, Boy Scouts of America out of Honolulu, was looking for a neighborhood commissioner for the islands. I thought I'd try it. My primary assignment was to introduce scouting into the Marshall Islands. Kwajalein already had a couple of troops made up of the children of American families working on the island. So I determined to try to establish the program on eBay, three islands north of Kwajalein, where most of the Marshallese in that part of the atoll lived. Organizational meetings required my presence on eBay, sometimes two or three evenings a week eBay spelled E-B-E-Y-E, and I may or may not be pronouncing it correctly, probably not, so forgive us. The meetings were usually concluded by nine or shortly after, but I had to wait until 11 o'clock to get the last boat back to Quage. My friend and interpreter, Onisimum Chapelle, tried to keep me entertained until the boat got there. One evening he mentioned that there was an old man there who had a story to tell. This intrigued me because I was interested in the history of the area. In the course of our conversation, I asked the old man when was the first time he met Americans. Before the war, he said. I was surprised because I knew the Japanese had closed the Marshall Islands to foreigners in the late 20s. I don't understand, I said. How long before the war? Five years, he said. How did you meet Americans before the war, I asked. Well, I didn't exactly meet them, he said, but I did bring them in. Bring them in, I don't understand. What happened? A plane landed on the water, he said. A big plane. Four motors? I asked. No, two. Where? Come, I show you, he said. The old man walked with us from his house to the eastern shore of Ibe. We went to the south end of the perimeter road. There stood two A frame houses with a line of four coconut trees. You see these trees? he said. The plane was exactly in line with them. How far out? I asked. About a hundred yards from the land. What happened then? Two people got out, a man and a woman. The captain made me take my boat out and pick them up. I didn't talk to them. The captain? I asked. He answered. The boss, the Japanese officer. The captain took them away. I never saw them again. He said they were spies. It was time to go for the boat back to Quaz. I thanked the old man and left. None of this registered with me in particular until a couple years later when I had moved to another assignment on Roy Namur. The island manager there was Frank Serafini. He too was something of a history buff. Frank and I had many pleasant chats about the history of the islands. In one of these I mentioned the story the old man had told me so that's where it came down he exclaimed that answers it answers what i said let me tell you a few things frank went to his desk and took out a letter this is from navy commander so-and-so i don't remember the name i've been corresponding with him for years who was he i asked He was with Navy intelligence during the war, and he was attached to the 4th Marines when they invaded Roy Namur. He went in with the first wave on Roy. His specific task was to look for any evidence that Amelia Earhart or her navigator, Fred Noonan, had been there. Why here? I asked. Because Roy had the only airfield on the atoll at that time, Frank said. If the Japs were going to take them any place from Kwajalein Atoll, they had to come through here. Did he find anything? Here, read this letter, starting here. He pointed to a place on the second page. I was rummaging through a pile of debris in a corner of the burned-out main hangar, the writer said, when I came across a blue leatherette map case. It was empty, but it had the letters A-E embossed on it in gold leaf. Oh, they were here all right. That's enough, Frank said. He took the letter back, and that's the last I saw of it. What did the commander do with the map case, I asked. He said he turned it over to Naval Intelligence. He doesn't know what happened to it after that, said Frank. Does anybody know about this? Why would they keep such a thing secret? I wanted to know. Because, even now, the Navy doesn't want to admit they had anything to do with spying against the Japanese before the war, Frank said. Frank eventually left Roy and went to Saudi Arabia on another project. He and his wife moved to Sun City, Arizona, and may still be there. He also may still have that correspondence from the commander. And there's more, this one from the Amelia Earhart Society. Reverend Joseph C. Wright, a Presbyterian minister from Gulfport, Mississippi, was an Air Force major on temporary duty at Guam in the spring of 1967. Writing to Fred Gurner in July of 67, Wright recalled that while visiting his brother-in-law on Majuro Atoll, he and a Majuro-based missionary made a field trip to Mealy Atoll. 80 miles away. The following is taken from Wright's letter to Fred Gurner and appeared in the July 98 issue of the Amelia Earhart Society newsletters. All of Fred Gurner's files are in the possession of the Nimitz Museum in Texas. The letter reads, I am a member of the Air Force, SAC, in a B-52 unit that just recently returned from a six-month TDY in Guam. While there, I had the great fortune to wrangle myself a 10-day leave to visit Majuro in the Marshalls. My brother-in-law is principal of the high schools there, and in addition, I knew an Assembly of God missionary, Sam Sasser, who, with his family, having been living there for over five years. It was an act of God, or providence, that allowed me to make the contacts that we were able to, which was a part of a Grecian odyssey in itself. Our Trust Territory aircraft arrived in Majuro on a Wednesday morning, 26th of April 1967, a few hours after the clunker vessel, the Mieko Queen had departed for the supposedly five-day field trip to Mili Atoll. Sasser, a native sailor, and myself elected to take a 14-foot, 40-horsepower motorboat across 15 miles of stormy ocean late in the afternoon to try to catch the Queen at Arno Atoll that evening. After three tries at jumping the reef, we successfully got into the rolling ocean swells and after four tough hours, with no life vests, caught the vessel at 8 p.m. that night. With rough weather and a breakdown aboard the ship, We extended to almost three weeks. The trip to Mealy was tremendous, and the discoveries were even more exciting. They hadn't seen half a dozen white people in over 25 years. The missionary effort was tremendous, and on Mealy Island itself, which had been completely bombed out in World War II, we explored war records that had been completely untouched since the war. All kinds of Betty Bombers, fighters, and the most exciting, a wrecked American P-38. I identified it and recovered his little brass radio call sign dash panel plate. The guy turned out to be quite a hero, which is another story, and which I intend to follow through and identify, the writer says. During the voyage, Wright met Captain Leonard de Brum, master of the vessel Mieko Queen, who told him of three people on Mealy Island who might have information about the Earhart mystery. Wright's letter to Gurner continues but the most thrilling discovery was to locate the specific island that Amelia Earhart crashed on. Yes, it is circumstantial evidence, but here is the story. I became good friends with Captain Leonard de Brum, the master of the vessel Mieko Queen. We discussed the Earhart mystery. Yes, he had heard rumors of the Lady American Flyer but didn't pay much attention or put much stock in them. It had been so many years ago so he referred Sasser and myself to three aged people on a particular island in the Mili Atoll. On Inajet Island, Wright asked an old man if he remembered an American airplane landing in the area many years ago. Through the interpreter I asked him, Many years ago do you remember an American airplane being in this part of the world? Yes, it was 30 years ago, and I remember very well now, because the person from the airplane was not a man, but a lady with man's clothes and a man's haircut. Also, she had a man with her with white cloth around his head. But we could not be curious. It was in Japan times, and they were very hard people. One woman would not cooperate, and they cut off her head. But the story was that these people had papers and hid them in a hollow hole of a tree. In a couple of days, the Japs came and took the two people away, and also the wreckage. Several months later, Wright sent Gurner two photos of the old man and with the help of Dirk Ballendorf, a Peace Corps official on Saipan, the native was identified as Lamoro, then living on Mealy Island. No further contact with Lamoro was ever reported. Wright's story was published in the Biloxi Gulfport Sun-Herald on July 3, 1992. Joseph Wright's report enhances the likelihood that the American flyers were taken to Kwajalein Atoll soon after the July 2nd disappearance. In their 2001 essay, Next Stop Kwajalein, published only on the Amelia Earhart Society website, Amelia Earhart Lives author Joe Claus Klaas and Joe Gervais speculated that some Marshall Islands reports of a plane landing on the water were not, as most assumed, sightings of Earhart's Electra, but of a Japanese seaplane with the American flyers aboard. And here's a terrific story on the Marshall Islands stamps that reflect the fact of Amelia Earhart's Mili Atoll landing. Anyone familiar with the Earhart saga knows that in 1987, the Republic of the Marshall Islands issued a set of four commemorative stamps and envelope covers in honor of the 50th anniversary of Amelia's crash landing off Bar Island in the northwest section of Mili Atoll on July 2, 1937. The story depicted in The Stamps is based largely on the narrative in Vincent V. Loomis's 1983 book, Amelia Earhart, The Final Story, though not all of it can be considered accurate. Here is the story. Awaiting her on Howland Island, 2,556 miles away, was the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca, equipped with the latest navigation and communication devices. Commander Warner K. Thompson had searchlights aimed skyward all night as a beacon. With the dawn, the Itasca began burning bunker oil, which put out a black plume visible for 30 miles around. An experimental Navy Direction Finding Unit, DF, was set on Howland itself, and officers also scanned the skies with binoculars. All through the night and the next morning, radio operators struggled to establish two-way communications with Earhart's Electra. Earhart's transmissions would drift in and out, but she seemed unable to understand the messages the Coast Guardsmen were sending and she never stayed on the air long enough for them to fix her position. Each succeeding broadcast seemed more desperate and confused until two hours after sunrise locally, her last message, we are on the line of position 157, 337. We are running north and south. Then 50 years of silence. Thinking they were south of Howland Island, but unable to find it, Earhart and Noonan implemented their contingency plan and turned into a west-northwest course for the Gilberts. However, since they were north of Howland, their new course carried them directly over Mili Atoll, most southeasterly of the Japanese-held Marshall Islands. Two Mili fishermen on Bar Island, Lijon and Jororo Alibar, saw a Silver plane approach and crash land on the nearby reef, breaking off part of its right wing. The two Marshallese hid in the underbrush and watched as two white people exited the wreck it came ashore in a yellow wrapped. A little while later, Japanese soldiers arrived to take hold of the flyers. When the shorter flyers screamed, the marshal realized one was a woman. They remained hidden until long after the captives were taken away. The stamp story continues. Japanese Navy survey ship Kyoshu was sent from Ponape to Bar Island to pick up Earhart's Lockheed Electra. The canvas sling on Kyosho, normally used for plucking Japanese seaplanes from the water, was still around the big silver bird when the ship returned to Jaluit on July 19th, where Japanese medical corpsman Bilimon Amaran, who treated Noonan's crash injuries, boarded the ship and saw Earhart. The Kyosho then sailed immediately to truck, where Earhart and Noonan were taken aboard a flying boat to Saipan, the Japanese military headquarters in the Pacific. Saipanese Josephine Blanco witnesses the Japanese plane landing at Tanapag Harbor and she was taken by her brother-in-law, a Japanese working at the base, to see the Americans. Earhart and Noonan were considered spies by the Japanese and so were held on Saipan for questioning. Their fate remains unknown. The stamp is based in Amelia Earhart The Final Story by Vincent Loomis. It was designed by William R. Hansen, lunar artist Apollo 16 who also designed the CPAEX cancel and cachet and wrote this panel. The House of Cuesta printed the issue to the standard commemorative specifications. According to researcher and writer Mike Campbell, no evidence exists to support the idea presented by the authors of the one-page information sheet issued with the stamps that the flyers were taken from Jaluit to Truck and then to Saipan. On the contrary, Campbell writes in one of his blogs at airharttruth.wordpress.com that we have plenty of witness testimony that Earhart and Noonan were taken from Jaluit to Kwajalein, and then to Saipan. Based on the photo that has just turned up, and our research, we say Jaluit to Emish, then to Saipan. Likewise, the statement that Earhart and Noonan, once realizing they were lost, implemented their contingency plan and turned into a west-northwest course for the Gilberts, and eventually found themselves at Atoll, is speculation and not a known fact. Though this could have happened, we simply do not know precisely how or why Earhart and Noonan landed off Bar Island, only that they did indeed do so. Some believe, and possibly correctly, that the Japanese had spotted the Electra flying over one of their newly built airstrips and scrambled two Mitsubishi fighters to intercept them within the territory of the Marshalls over which Japan claimed sovereignty. This would include Mili Atoll, where the plane was forced to land. But the fact that Mili did not have an airstrip makes the conjecture possible that it was forced to land there, on a reef that made for an extremely hazardous landing. Maybe they had feared being spotted by Japanese planes, which would have caused them to end all radio transmissions, which might have given away their locations. But it is most likely that the plane was out of fuel. The investigations of other authors and researchers, including Fred Gurner, Oliver Nags, K-N-A-G-G-S, Bill Primack, P-R-Y-M-A-K, and more, recently Dick Spink and Les Kinney, who found two pieces of wreck that they believe belonged to Earhart's elector at Mili Atoll, have strongly corroborated the truth depicted in the 1987 commemorative stamps issued by the Republic of the Marshall Islands. One ironic fact is that the Japanese vessel that carried Earhart, Noonan, and their plane was listed in U.S. Naval records as one that carried on a search for the lost aviators during the week of searches that followed. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the efforts of TIGAR, T-I-G-H-A-R, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, located in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Their website info at T-I-G-H-A-R dot org. To unlock the truth, here is the theory to which they currently subscribe. The Earhart Project, in a nutshell, this is what we think happened. Having failed to find Howland Island, Amelia Earhart and navigator Fred Noonan continued on the navigational line Amelia said they were following. That line led them to an uninhabited Gardner Island, where Amelia landed the Electra safely on the island's fringing reef. For the next several nights, they used the aircraft's radio to send distress calls. Radio bearings taking on the signals crossed in the vicinity of Gardner Island. One week after the flight disappeared, three U.S. Navy search planes flew over Gardner Island. By then, the distress calls had stopped. Rising tides and surf had swept the Electra over the reef edge. The Navy Flyers saw no airplane, but they did see signs of recent habitation. They thought that all the islands in the area were inhabited, so they moved on. In fact, no one had lived on Gardner since 1892. Earhart and possibly Noonan lived for a time as castaways on the waterless atoll, relying on rain squalls for drinking water that caught and cooked small fish, seabirds, turtles and clams. Amelia died at a makeshift campsite on the island's southeast end. Noonan's fate is unknown. Whatever remains of the Electra lies in deep water off the island's west end. Their website is well done and contains lots of information on the search for Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And we continue the path of Earhart and Noonan to Saipan. The vessel, according to this account, delivered the hapless prisoners first to the naval base at Emiège near Jaluit, a Japanese intelligence headquarters and base of operations in the Marshalls, and then they were taken to Kwajalein for more questioning. In a March 2, 2015 post titled, Jim Golden's Legacy of Honor in the Earhart Saga, Mike Campbell introduced the late Jim Golden, a close friend of Fred Gurner, and in the day, a near-legendary figure in Earhart research circles. Golden, whose unique career included eight years as a Secret Service agent in the Dwight D. Eisenhower administration, two years as Howard Hughes' chief of security in Las Vegas, and a stint in the U.S. Justice Department, from where he tried to help Gerner search for the elusive top-secret Earhart files that President John F. Kennedy had allowed Gerner and California newspaperman Ross Game to see briefly in 1963, just before JFK's assassination in Dallas. Among the secrets Golden shared with Gurner was the revelation that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were brought to the islands of Roy Namur, Kwajalein Atoll, by air from Jaluit Atoll, by the Japanese in 1937, a fact he learned from Marine intelligence officers during the American invasion of Kwajalein in January of 1944. Mike Campbell writes, During several telephone conversations I had with Golden in the summer of 2008, He recalled his experiences as a 19-year-old enlisted Marine photographer in the intelligence section of the 4th Marine Division during the Kwajalein campaign. Quote, The Marines wrote up a detailed report capturing the info that related that in 1937, two white persons, a male and female, were brought by plane to Roy, Golden told me. The man with a white bandage on his head and the woman with short-cut hair wearing men's pants who were taken across a causeway to the Namur Administration Building. Three days later, taken out to a small ship in the lagoon, which then departed. I read the report myself, says Campbell. This report would routinely be forwarded to the 4th Division Intel, then on to the U.S. Navy. This report must have been the first sighting of her capture by the Japanese, by U.S. forces at that time. The following story, FDR's Amelia Earhart Watergate by one Leon Freilich appeared in the January 3rd, 1978 issue of the Midnight Globe tabloid newspaper, which at some later date changed its name to the familiar Globe that adorns checkout racks in supermarkets and other retail stores nationwide, along with its better-known rival, the National Enquirer. It first appeared in the Amelia Earhart Society Newsletter's June 1992 issue as FDR's Amelia Earhart Watergate, and reads thus, The late President Franklin Delano Roosevelt covered up the truth behind aviatrix Amelia Earhart's mysterious disappearance and created his own Watergate, nearly 40 years before Richard Nixon. Amelia Earhart was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She tried in 1937 to fly around the world and disappeared into the Pacific. Now a top-level Justice Department official, James Golden, charges that FDR withheld the facts of her disappearance for his own ends. Amelia Earhart was killed in the line of duty, and President Roosevelt refused to let it get out. Golden, director of enforcement for the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration in Washington, D.C., told the Midnight Globe. She was a spy for the Navy. She didn't just disappear, as Roosevelt led the press and public to believe. Amelia Earhart was taking reconnaissance shots of Japanese naval facilities when her plane was forced down. She died at the hands of the Japanese. Similar accusations of a cover-up have been leveled in the past, and a book, The Search for Amelia Earhart, detailed some of the charges several years ago. However, this is the first attack on Roosevelt's credibility by a top figure in the federal government. Why did FDR stonewall the facts, if all that's true? His answer? Amelia Earhart was a glamorous aviatrix, and America's favorite woman adventurer, said Golden. For some reason, she'd agreed to use her round-the-world flight as a mask for a spying operation. In those days, spying, especially spying on friendly countries, was considered the lowest of the low in this country. So when she lost her life, Roosevelt was afraid he would lose millions of votes in the next election. Consequently, he stifled the truth. How does the high-level government prober know this? There's a top-secret file with all this information in the White House, he revealed. It can't be released except by the president, but two of my friends in the intelligence community have seen it. I consider them wholly reliable. They told me the file includes a four-page summary of Japan's secret report on the Amelia Earhart case. The summary relates that she and her co-pilot, Fred Noonan, were captured by Japanese forces on July 2, 1937, near Saipan, the Central Pacific headquarters for Japanese ships. The Japanese took the two there and kept them under heavy interrogation for a year and a half. Then they beheaded Noonan, Amelia Earhart died the very next day. The record said the cause of the death was dysentery, but even if that's true, the blame belongs on her captors who kept her penned up in primitive conditions. The file confirmed what Golden had learned firsthand during World War II. I was a Marine intelligence officer, actually a private first class, and landed on Saipan, actually Kwajalein, in January 44, he said. Some of the elders described to me in minute detail how a white woman and man had been seized from a fallen giant bird. That would be their plane, and the pair were kept on the island as prisoners until the Japanese chopped off the man's head. The woman, Amelia Earhart, of course, was never seen again. The natives' testimony plus the secret file fit together too neatly to spell anything but the full story. I'm telling you this not to embarrass the U.S. government. My motive is simply this. Amelia Earhart gave her life for her country and it ought to have the good grace to thank her for it. The January 7, 2003 edition of the Kwajalein Hourglass, the weekly newsletter at the US Army facility at Kwajalein, ran an article, Did Amelia Earhart Land on Kwajalein Atoll? by Eugene C. Sims, who was stationed there as a GI in 1945 and returned to work as a civilian from 1964 to 71 and from 83 to 86. Sims recalled his youth in Oakland, California during the 1930s and how he grew to idolize Earhart after seeing her at the local airport. When Fred Gerner's book was published in 1966, Sims was working on Kwajalein. After reading it, he was inspired to pursue his own Earhart investigation. He quotes I was surprised to hear them speak so openly about the white skinned lady and man who came to Kwajalein in 1937. An unidentified Marshallese man told Sims that as a 12-year-old in 1937, a large Japanese ship came into the harbor, and he saw a white lady and man on the deck, a rare sight in those times. Earhart and Noonan were transferred from Kwajalein by seaplane to the Japanese island of Saipan, where, in the opinion of many, they would spend the remaining numbered days of their lives. The Japanese presence in the Pacific in July of 1937 was immense. They had attacked China, and they were in the process of a huge buildup, creating refueling stations and landing strips all throughout the Pacific, within attacking range of the U.S. Naval Facility at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, threatening the oil-rich Dutch-controlled islands in the Pacific, as well as British territories, including Australia and New Guinea. Was the U.S. blind to the threat at Pearl Harbor? History would have us think so. I think not. I don't think it was a coincidence that all our carriers were out on December 7, 1941, either. We don't know if Australian coastal intelligence or U.S. naval intelligence had cracked Japanese code yet, but with the capture of Noonan and Earhart, contact between their intelligence stations in the Pacific had to have been very lively. Anyone with information on our capabilities in 1937 can contact us here at 1001 by posting on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes or emailing me at 1001 storiespodcastgmailcom at gmail.com. If we or Australia were listening in, we knew then that they had been taken alive. It was on the island of Saipan, which our Marines took after weeks of bloody fighting between June 13th and July 9th of 1944, that most of the accounts of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were given, by the people who had lived there. In Part 2 we will share these accounts, gathered by a score of intrepid journalists, beginning with Fred Gurner, accounts that describe a hard captivity for what our Office of Naval Intelligence termed, as an 18-month imprisonment ending in cold-blooded murder by the Japanese in late 1938, if Jim Golden's report is correct. We will provide an update on the search for DNA that will provide the final puzzle piece that will end the controversy on how and when Amelia Earhart and Fred Newman met their fate, as well as the questions, some reasonable, some sounding like science fiction, that surround Amelia Earhart's actions during her captivity. Did she bear a child on Saipan? Did she cooperate with the Japanese to provide information on U.S. aviation and design? Did she survive the war after serving as one of the 15 Tokyo Rose radio hosts whose job it was to demoralize Allied forces, then change her identity and live out the rest of her life in anonymity? Why did her mother attend every day of the 1949 trial of Eva Taguri, who the Americans called Tokyo Rose, and tell a New York Times reporter that Amelia was safe in the care of the Japanese? Why did our military pay to send Amelia's husband, George Putnam, overseas to listen to Tokyo Rose-style broadcasts, which were using captured Allied prisoners, most of them females, to announce to Allied troops daily that they had no choice of winning, exaggerating their battle losses, as well as Japanese victories, and giving just enough details to be convincing? And what happened when George reported that he had identified her voice? Why have both governments, U.S. and Japanese, stonewalled many attempts to verify that Amelia and Fred survived the crash of their plane, despite so many witness testimonies. Lots of questions answered and many more generated in next week's Amelia Earhart, Part 2, Saipan and Beyond. Join us. It's much easier to fly the Atlantic Ocean now than it was a few years ago. I expect to be able to do it in my lifetime again. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, where every week, starting Sunday night at 8 to 8.30 p.m., depending on which app you're using, we bring you a new show to enjoy. We invite you to enjoy our other two shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, all at Apple Podcasts and wherever great podcasts are found. Here's our home site, 1001storiespodcast.com. Our network, 1001 Stories Podcast Network, is heard around the world 24-7, 365, 5 million times a year as I write this, and growing, all thanks to you. Thanks for your Apple iTunes and Stitcher reviews, and for your shares at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.